Hello, and welcome to the Collider.com podcast. I'm Collider.com Senior Editor Matt Goldberg, and with me is Deputy Editor Adam Chitwood. Howdy, folks. And Associate Editor Vinny Mancuso. Hello, hello. Today we'll be talking about Once Upon a Time in Hollywood, the new film from Quentin Tarantino. Before we dig into that, we have a quick programming note. The Collider.com podcast is moving to a new feed on iTunes called Collider Weekly. Uh, We are still part of the Collider Factory, but soon the podcast will be off the Collider Factory and moving to the Collider Weekly feed, uh, where you'll get podcasts solely from Collider.com writers, including us and Dave Trembor, who who has just launched an animation podcast. So please be sure to look for Collider Weekly on iTunes and subscribe. All right, with that out of the way, um, the new Tarantino film, Once Upon a Time in Hollywood, is out. The way we're going to structure this episode is that the first part of the episode will be just general talk about the film. It'll be spoiler-free. Then, because the ending is such a huge part of this movie, we're going to move into a spoiler discussion. We'll give a warning when that happens. And then we'll wrap up talking about where does Tarantino go from here and also giving our, we'll also give our rankings of Tarantino's filmography where we will count Kill Bill as two movies because it is. So with that all in mind, um, Vinny, what, what did you think about Once Upon a Time in Hollywood? Um, it's kind of tough to explain my reaction to it because I, I've seen it twice mm-hmm. and it wasn't until the second time that it really clicked in how I felt about the movie. The first time I saw it, um, it's such a different kind of movie for Tarantino. It's, it's so, uh, me, not, not even meandering cause that sounds negative. It just sort of wanders and it's, it's, it's sunny and there's not as much, you know, plot and there's not as much, Ten- tension the entire time and I-, I was just not expecting that and the second time I saw it I walked out just just in love with the movie because I was ready to just have a hangout which is kind of what this movie wants to do it-, it-, it builds this ideal fantasy image of this very particular snapshot in time and then you just hang out there for a while until things get nutty for a bit and I when I was ready for that I was so down to just hang out with these characters because I uh I was so excited to see it a second time because I was uh I found myself missing just this sunny hangout that this movie is totally down to do and I uh I walked out of it the second time really just uh I I don't know it's almost like I want to go see it again because I miss I miss hanging out in this little slice of life that Tarantino has created in such a dreamy strange way and Adam, what what did you think about this film? Uh, I liked it a lot. I uh, I immediately wanted to see it again after I saw it. Um, it's surprising. It's not like Tarantino's other films, as Vinny said. Like, there's not a ton of plot to it. Um, you know, Rick and Cliff aren't exactly like they're not some ticking clock or some big thing that they need to get done or surmount or do like there is in Django Unchained or Inglorious Bastards or even Hateful Eight uh, with Daisy Domergue and and trying to get her um, to Red Rock. Um, the ticking clock in Once Upon a Time in Hollywood is Jaron Tate and knowing what happens to her. Uh, and that's a very, um, uh, I think that's a very important part of the film. But I was really most struck by how the film is far less verbose than a lot of Tarantino's other movies. It's not as fixated on his language and dialogue um, as 
pretty much every single one of his other films are. Uh, I don't think it's a coincidence that Rick has a speech impediment. Uh, he has a stutter, so he literally cannot be as eloquent and as snappy and funny as the characters in Tarantino's other films um, until he's in front of the camera uh, shooting his Western TV shows and his, his guest spots and stuff, which I think is also an important part of the film. Um, and then Brad Pitt's character, Cliff, it like is a man of few words and then uh sharon tate doesn't have a ton of lines at all um she's kind of more of this kind of haunting figure um over the film uh and and kind of an idea and a presence um there to kind of remind you um but i i really liked it it's it's kind of tarantino by way of link later like Vinny said it's it's very much kind of like a hangout movie but it's got a lot on, on its mind, and, and the fact that it's much more focused on visual storytelling, I think, um, makes it a film that's going to be really fruitful upon multiple rewatches, um, kind of pulling and getting at other things and other ideas. Um, you know, Tarantino's always been a, a visual filmmaker. He's very specific in where he wants the camera, how he wants the camera to move, um, how he wants to frame up certain shots. Uh, but I think this film is maybe one of his most impressive directorial feats um, so far, just in terms of how he's telling the story. Yeah, I was really impressed how the film kind of jumps around and how it can be sort of very comic and, and lighthearted in one moment and very tense and sort of foreboding in another. Uh, I was really impressed when uh, Cliff Booth at one point goes to Spawn Ranch and uh, that's where the Manson family uh, was based um, around the time of the murders and the way he just builds tension and sort of almost like th- it's like the birds, except instead of birds, it's hippies and just the way they're just <laughs> more and more hippies just congregating around uh, Cliff Booth. And it's but spooky. it is it's spooky. And like because, you know, Cliff Booth is a fictional character. Anything can happen to Cliff Booth. Um, like we're not, you know, but, and, and what's weird about this film is that we're invested in two guys who are kind of, I don't want to say dirt bags, but they're not, they're not, I wouldn't say they're like heroes. That's the thing. I wouldn't say that they are heroic figures. I mean, uh, Rick Dalton is kind of a, a drunk who, yes, he has a good friendship with Cliff, but he's also sort of made him his gopher and his employee. And there's kind of an unequal balance there. Um, and Cliff, uh, I won't spoil what makes him sort of a questionable character, but the film just leaves it hanging there. It doesn't resolve it. Um, It's part of his character. And, you know, this film, I can definitely see how it rubs some people the wrong way. If you sort of look, if you look at movies and believe that there's sort of this notion that, especially since the 1980s, that characters need to be likable that that is the most important thing. The characters need to be likable. They need to be moral. And in a weird way, sort of what we've come back to is sort of a, a de facto production code that has in, in sort of imprinted a morality on film so that audiences aren't turned off. And Tarantino was not really interested in that. He does have a moral compass to his films in terms of punishing evil, but in terms of who is good, he is far more flexible in that estimation. And you really see that here in Once Upon a Time in Hollywood in looking at, at Rick and Cliff. And I was really captivated by the way he sort of paints these characters and doesn't necessarily hold your hand in how you're supposed to feel about them. I also, I really like, and I, I, I don't want to dip too far into spoilers yet, but I, I like how there's not like a surprise underlying 
something sinister beneath the friendship. They're just like good friends, and it's never not the case. Like they, they, like throughout the whole movie, they're just buds. And I kept thinking, yeah. I kept waiting for like one of them to leave the other behind, or one of them to you know do something that betrays the friendship. And now, now you're waiting like, for that shoe to drop. Yeah, exactly. And I, but now I love how from beginning to end, they're just they're just two buds. They're not necessarily good people, but they're good for each other, which is something that is really touching and not something you see a lot in movies where there's just two guys, two two bros who love each other unironically and they don't need to be, you know, good people for you to relate to a part of them. And I think what's really, really endearing about that relationship is that there's nothing driving it other than the fact that they sort of complete each other in this odd kind of violent sometimes way and i think that's 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 i don't know it's something that you don't see a lot and this movie really dug into it in a uh like you said they're both flawed interesting way yeah it's, they're bros but not in like a todd phillips way where it's like <laughs> eh. yeah <laughs> exactly <laughs> But I, I think it's telling that, the, you know, Rick Dalton, you know, in the trailers. So it's Leonardo DiCaprio and and Tarantino loves movies. And so he's using your knowledge of these people as movie stars in this role to bring that baggage to it. And he knows, you know, he wanted to cast huge name actors in these two roles. So Leonardo DiCaprio, um, you know, traditional, traditionally a leading man can sometimes play a villain. Um, but even then, like he's alluring and compelling in one of the opening scenes in here, he's a blubbering mess crying because he thinks his career is over. And he turns into he like in introduces audiences to Rick Dalton as something of a wimp. Like he's not super masculine. He's not confident at all. Um, but it's really touching the way that Cliff reacts to that and how he, Vinny, like you said, like they kind of complete each other. Cliff serves a really um, uh, beneficial purpose to Rick, but it's not in like a, butler way it doesn't feel subservient it feels like a close buddy way like this is like you said i think this is a really good friendship movie yeah and it's a friendship that i think you know really makes the strong case that you know characters don't need to be likable they just need to be compelling like i i don't necessarily like to compare to the todd phillips thing these aren't like bros that you would necessarily want to hang out with you know and be like oh this reminds me of me and my bros but it does remind you of like remind you of like what a good friendship is where you sort of embrace people with all their faults. And, and, and sometimes that can be damaging. I mean, that's can be damaging for both people. And we see that with Rick and Cliff, you know, that Rick and Cliff would probably may would have more opportunities if they had done things a different way, if they had separated, if Rick is like, Oh, I'll get this guy as my stunt man. Or Cliff is like, well, I'll do this instead. You know, like if they had made different choices, but because they are connected, their fortunes kind of rise and fall with each other, which is kind of sweet. It is. And I think it's a, I think that sweetness kind of um, goes throughout the movie and, and, you know, Rick and Cliff are, so the film has kind of like three social strata cliff. Um, there's a really tremendous montage of cliff driving to his home, um, uh, which is, I'll say it's a trailer, but I won't spoil anything more of it. But the montage of Cliff driving to his home, what happens when he gets home, um, who is in his home, tells you everything you need to know about that character. But there's no like dialogue or narration telling you, 
it, like the it again it's visual storytelling telling you what you need to know about cliff and cliff is someone who does not have a lot in life uh doesn't have very much money doesn't really have anything um rick is kind of in that middle strata like obviously he uh was a western tv star he has money but he feels his star fading. He's stuck kind of in these parts, like playing the villains. It's hard to feel super bad for him because he's still, you know, a celebrity. Um, and then just out of reach, and I think very purposely out of reach, is Sharon Tate. And the way she's shot is kind of from afar as a bystander because she is this rising star um, who feels kind of untouchable, but is also kind of the future of Hollywood, the future of where things are going. Um, and I, I just, I mean, there have been a lot of complaints that she doesn't have uh, much dialogue in the film. She doesn't really have much to do. That's a, think- that's a weak complaint. It's a weak complaint. Yes. I'm it sorry. Is. It is. If you're, if your whole basis for what makes a strong character is how many lines they have or how much screen time they have, you fucked up. <laughs> I'm sorry. That's just not I how. I think that's, uh, that's like a, a, a sign of like, what people have come to expect good acting is like what I, I see. You see it a lot around Oscar time, people are like, this is the best performance of the year, but it's mostly just like it's most. The, mo- the most acting, like the yeah. person who did the most acting. And it's like saying that you can't be putting on a good performance if you're not saying anything is very strange to me because acting is not, like the writer writes the lines. It's the actor's job to do everything else that embodies that character. And the way that she is able to turn Sharon Tate both into like, the symbol that Tarantino obviously sees her as, and someone who's like very heartbreakingly human, like the the, the way that she's sitting in that theater watching her own movie, and you and you feel like you could be sitting next to Sharon Tate watching her movie. That was probably the most lovely part of the movie, and there's very little dialogue that's not directly from the Wrecking Crew in that scene, and that to that to me is is the weirdest part of that complaint. The fact that people are like, oh, she didn't have much to say, and it's like, but. She was. She didn't need to say anything. She was, she was human, which for like one of the first times since the sixties, it, it, it felt like Sharon Tate was an actual human. Well, and I think it's also telling that when she's watching her own movie on the screen, we see the actual Sharon Tate, yeah, um, and not so like Damian Lewis plays Steve McQueen in the movie. Um, there are other celebrities. There's an actor playing Roman Polanski. There are other actors in the film and there's cutaways to other movies and other like TV shows and stuff like that. Um, But I again, I think that Tarantino has made a movie that knows it's a movie and he knows you're watching a movie knowing that you're watching a movie. If any of that makes any sense. Um, But it's it's this idea and this kind of like tribute to Sharon Tate as a human being that. Uh, again i think it's telling that he leaves her in the film he doesn't cut margot robbie into the film because there are other aspects of the film where leonardo dicaprio was cut into movies right this isn't a steve mcqueen tribute film you know that's there there there's a specific there's specificity in terms of a respect for sharon tate now i i think we can argue about how far does that you know how does that respect manifest and, you know, what are its shortcomings and what are its strengths? I think that that's a valid co- conversation. I don't think she he, this movie doesn't do right by Sharon Tate because she didn't have X number of lines is a valid yeah. avenue for I think, conversation. I think the argument, is like, the argument is like, is Quentin Tarantino the best person to be doing this Sharon Tate tribute just based on 
any you know anything from the movies he's made to the things that he's done like i i i don't necessarily think i don't necessarily dislike quentin tarantino on a personal level as much as a lot of people do it's just interesting that he is holding up this this woman as like the ideal symbol of whatever he thinks it is and as someone who like people have pointed out, has been incredibly violent to women in movies and has, there was the whole thing behind the scenes on Kill Bill and all yeah. that stuff. It's just, it's a very, in, it, not interesting, maybe well, not interesting. It's a very noteworthy juxtaposition between yeah. happening and who's doing it. It is. It is It is a tricky, complex situation. It would be, wouldn't it be nice if everything were black and white and we could just choose sides? But you know what? Sometimes the gray area has vol, val, uh, value. And quite honestly, that's where adults have to live. You know, yeah. like, I'm sorry, like, it's, it's not, sometimes there's some things you're going to have to feel shitty about. And there's, some, you know, and if you want to invoke cancel culture and say Tarantino is canceled because X, Y, and Z, and I, therefore I am superior, you can do that. That's your right. Um, I don't think it's the most interesting avenue to go down, and I don't think it mm-hmm. means anything. Uh, I don't think you get points for not engaging with art. I don't think that you win anything by not engaging and by not being part of the conversation. Um, you can hate it to your heart's content, but you have to do the work. Um, I would say that, you know, the other thing to consider um, with Tarantino is, you know, with this film, and I think what makes it a more, I think it, in addition to, I totally agree with you guys, it's more of a hangout film and it's more sort of unlike anything he's ever done. I think it's also challenging for him in ways that don't necessarily reflect well on him because this is the first movie he's done where he's, you know, Sharon Tate is not the only real person in this. I mean, the, there's the Bruce Lee of it all. Um, <laughs> and, you know, Bruce Lee is an icon who gets kind of made the butt of the joke in, and you've seen that in the, that's not spoiling anything. That's in the trailer. Um, but, I will say it's very funny. <laughs> I, you know, it's fun. It is, it is funny. And yet I've also read Asian critics who found it less than amusing. Uh, and I can totally see why they would feel that way. And I think for Tar- from Tarantino's perspective, it probably just feels like, Oh, you know, obviously I'm not, you know, I, I have respect for Asian actors, but like I, I'm a Sonny Chiba guy, whereas I don't really care that much about Bruce Lee and I'm going to take him down a peg. And yet that's so weird because Bruce Lee also died tragically. He wasn't murdered, but he also had a, like a very bright promising career that could have transformed Hollywood and it was tragically cut short. Uh, but you know, whereas Sharon Tate is sort of this ideal and, you know, what could have been. And, you know, she is she was the you know, she was going to be a I, the film clearly thinks she was going to be a luminary of the 1970s. Like she was going to be yeah. an icon. Um, why that is not extended to Bruce Lee as well. I don't know, <laughs> but it is also there. I will I will say that um, Mike. Mo, I think his name mm-hmm. is, is mm-hmm. like as Bruce Lee, the physicality of it. Is oh yeah, the actor is fantastic. great. I, yeah. I, I, I would like the, throughout the whole scene, it was honestly a little uncanny how well he got down the mannerisms and the and the way he spoke. And I was also really intrigued by the later scenes where Bruce they just like the real quick cuts of Bruce Lee, uh, like training Sharon Tate behind the scenes of uh, of the Wrecking Crew because that that to me. It almost did feel a little bit like a tribute. It was almost like they showed him. They, he almost demystified him a little bit because mm-hmm. I, I, I know that Bruce Lee has been built up as like the dude, like which he was. Don't get me wrong, 
but like he he's basically become more icon than person, a lot like Sharon Tate has. And I I really like the quick cutaway of him like in the backyard training Sharon Tate in these moves. That that felt it wasn't as effective, but it did to me feel like it was a little bit made to make Bruce Lee feel like a human being, which yeah is and nice I, because. No, I, go on. No, no, I really, I know, I'm with you. I really like that, and I like the way that the film is about stripping away icons and showing, you know, that humanity, and that's, and I think again that darkness at the edge of the film with the Manson family and 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 elsewhere. I mean, my friend uh, Chris Bumbray, who's a critic for Joe Blow, pointed out that. Uh, Timothy Oliphant's character had a very, like the, the actor that he is playing had a very dark history. Um, huh. Like, yeah. So that character, and I forget the actor's name, but he, you know, you, the last we see of him is right, him riding away on a motorcycle. And that character later, that actor was later in a motorcycle accident where <laughs> he was, became a double amputee. Oh no. Yeah. Lost an arm and a leg, continued acting, but it got worse. He later went to prison for child molestation. So anyway, shit gets real dark. Even if like, we all know the Manson darkness, but Tarantino's like, here's darkness that you don't even know about. That's in my movie. What a but fun Easter egg. <laughs> yeah. Let's call it an Easter egg. Sure. <laughs> well, there's also Bruce Lee was intrinsically tied to the Manson murders because, uh, you know, they didn't know that the Mansons did it in real life. Um, for a little while and there was speculation very early on that Bruce Lee had done it because they found his fingerprints in the house. Um, I don't know if I can't remember correctly if it was the authorities that thought it Bruce Lee had did it or if it was Roman Polanski. Who the the story and, is actually kind of, I, I was just reading about it the other day. Roman Polanski thought it was Bruce Lee okay, because of yeah. some glasses they found at the crime the, scene. And that, then later while training, Bruce Lee mentioned that he had lost his glasses so, so Roman Polanski <laughs> took took Bruce Lee to replace them and watched what the prescription was. And once he noticed that the prescription was different, he finally did not believe Bruce Lee committed the crimes, which is an insane story. Yeah, from a from, from a director who would later create a great detective film. <laughs> <laughs> yes, <laughs> that's true. Pure gumshoe. Um, yeah, that's interesting. Well, and the movie is packed with all these references, but I don't think you necessarily have to get every single thing because there's also been some, uh, you know, uh, writings of people saying, you know, I'm not supposed to know the history of the Manson murders. It's like, well, you should know, like, overall culture. But also, I feel like the film does enough work to it, it explain what needs to be explained. But kind of the larger thematics of it, I think, are are what's the most interesting and, and the most uh, important to engage with. Um, and, and it almost, it feels at times I felt this movie felt like a confessional from Tarantino, um, especially with the Rick Dalton character and um, him kind of recounting the book that he's reading on the set of Lancer um, uh, when he's working with his young actress, who is terrific. Uh, I cannot remember her name at this point, but um, she has a really great scene stealing role. Um, but it feels like Tarantino wrestling with a world that he no longer um, is sure where he fits mm -hmm. with, uh, you know, the rise of Netflix, the rise of Marvel and blockbusters. You know, once upon a time, Tarantino was the new kid on the block and he was ruffling feathers and he was doing things that no one had ever seen in cinema before or some people had seen in cinema before, but doing them in ways that people had not seen before. Uh, and everyone kind of waited with bated breath uh, for his next project cut to the release of the hateful eight and it's met with something of a ho-hum response 
uh, from critics and nothing from the Academy. And I, I know like people don't care about Oscars. It got, Tarant- it got one, it got one nomination, but yeah. Yeah. But Tarantino does care about Oscars and he brings up the fact that like he won or lost like two specific people at specific points in time. And so it, like, I couldn't help but feel like this was him kind of working out a little bit of like, you know, I made this hateful aid on, you know, glorious 70 millimeter and like the box office wasn't good. Um, the reviews were like the most mixed of that he'd had in a long time, probably since death proof. Um, and he didn't even get a, a screenplay nomination at the Oscars and kind of considering like, you know, I don't know. It, it just felt like him kind of considering like, where's his place in um, Hollywood now, but like it's moving to an era with streaming with uh, Marvel movies, with blockbusters. And that's not to say that there aren't also exciting films being made on a smaller scale, which there absolutely are. Uh, you look at something like Moonlight, um, but like Tarantino wrestling with like, do I belong here anymore? And is there a place for me anymore? Also knowing that he's going to retire after 10 films. So I found that aspect of it really interesting. And you can't deny that like Hollywood is in a period of transition right now. Like that's just, that is just a fact. Um, And so for Tarantino to note that transition in his own movie. And also, you know, what's interesting is sort of the transitions that are at the margins right here, because this film, I think more than any film, you know, we all know that like Tarantino is like a major cinephile, but like this one also is like Tarantino also loves TV. He loves TV and there's so much TV. And yet TV was its own transitory period in the 1950s when people were like, Oh, people are never going to come back to the theater. They're all going to go stay home and watch television and theater, you know, the theatrical experience had to change because of television. So it's sort of a film that's in between two transitions where TV has, you know, movies and TV are now sort of their equal footing, but TV sort of looms as its own kind of entertainment. That was that this this whole thing was maybe one of, if not the most surprising thing about the movie, because Tarantino to me has always come off as being so confident in his choices to the, to the point of having very little self-awareness sometimes. Like he, he, he will always use the, the 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 racial language and be like, "That's just how people talk." And he'll he'll always do what he does unapologetically. And this really felt like, for the first time, him being like, "Hmm, maybe I have I am doing some stuff wrong." And that <laughs> that translates to like his main character, well, to to Leonardo DiCaprio's character not being a cool guy. He's 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 just not. I, I feel like he's not a stereotypical Tarantino character because you don't. You're not like, wow, this guy rules. Like, this guy, yeah. this guy's the coolest. Well, I mean, it, yeah. And our introduction to Rick Dalton is basically Al Pacino coming in and be like, here's how you're failing. Yeah. <laughs> here's how your career went down the toilet. Anyway, I love you, kid. <laughs> Pacino out. Well, and it's also not as if we get any semblance of the, like, Rick Dalton. Like, I don't think Rick Dalton cares about art or movies. Mm-hmm. He cares about being famous. Like the movie doesn't, the, this movie doesn't pretend like he is super passionate about like, you know, as long as I'm acting, I'm doing okay. And as long as I'm getting interesting parts, I'm doing okay. It's more about like, I want to be a star. Right. I mean, all of his posters are his movies. He doesn't have posters yeah. for any other film except the ones that he, he has been in and it's his face. And it's sort of like his success is sort of staring him down and his sort of lack of success is always sort of swirling around him including one directed by Antonio Margaretti. <laughs> Indeed. <laughs> I, I enjoyed that uh, Inglorious Pastor reference. Yes. Um, 
So I think as we head into sort of the second half of the show, we're going to kind of move into the spoiler territory because I want I think we need to kind of discuss the ending and, and where these characters end up and. So if you haven't seen Once Upon a Time in Hollywood yet, go see it. I think, I don't know if you will enjoy it, if you'll hate it, but I think it is one of the most interesting films of the year. I, I, I It's not a film that I love. I don't think it'll be in my top 10, but I was. it is a film I am eager to see again because I find it so interesting. And I think uh, it's a film that's worth talking about. So uh, now moving into spoiler territory, um, the ending of the film is Tarantino rewriting history again. Um, both Vinny and I have sort of written about this on the site. Vinny made wrote an extra excellent article about how it's sort of very melancholy where changing history sort of emphasizes the fairy tale aspect of the film and sort of what was lost. Um, for me, I sort of am a little uncomfortable with rewriting Sharon Tate's history because I feel it's a little, maybe a little glib and escapist to what actually happened. Um, Adam, what were your thoughts on the ending of the film? Um, conflicted as I think anyone's will be upon first watch, at least, um, because you don't necessarily know what's going to happen, but you have an inkling that maybe he might do this, but you don't know the way in which he's going to do it. Um, what was really interesting to me was that when the final title came up, so when, uh, when the film was, uh, you know, marketed and released, it's once upon a time in dot, dot, dot Hollywood, which would bring to mind Westerns. Uh, and Rick Dalton is in Westerns, and Westerns are a lot, uh, are a big part of the film. When the final title comes up, it's Once Upon a Time, dot, 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 in Hollywood. And the Once Upon a Time typeface is a fairy tale font, um, which to me is emphasizing kind of a, a, a fake out, that, that he was trying to hide the, the notion that this film is a fairy tale. Um, the, the third act absolutely takes a turn. It's very different from the rest of the film, it's dark. Um, it's incredibly violent. It's over the top and cartoonish at times. And I think it's a fairy tale. It's Tarantino doing something that you can only do in the movies. And I think the, I, I need to see it again. And maybe Vinny, you can answer this. So to me, it sounded like the narrator, which is Kurt Russell is aware of what actually happened when he's narrating you know, what's going on. The narrator is aware that um, uh, Sharon Tate was murdered along with these others uh, when he's discussing the events of the film, which would lead me to believe that this, this final act is a show of um, wish fulfillment or uh, kind of revenge fantasy. Um, I still am a little uneasy about it, but I do understand that it, it, it seems to me that, you know, this is, this is a film like a lot of other Tarantino's films that's celebrating movies and something that only movies can do is give you that catharsis of wouldn't it be nice if this happened? Wouldn't it be nice if this had happened instead? And it feels like that's what it's doing in the third act. It's presenting a fairy tale scenario. And again, I think it's important that when Margot Robbie Sharon Tate is watching her film, we see the actual Sharon Tate in that film. Um, this is a movie that's self-aware and knows that it's it's a movie and it's presenting a scenario of of kind of again wish fulfillment and fantasy and I don't know I find it interesting I was very it's 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 sweet at the end the that you know Rick and Cliff that relationship that friendship that they save each other's lives um, kind of and then it's 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 undeniably nice to see Rick invited in 
to Sharon's house and to hear her voice and to see her come out happy, still pregnant, still alive, inviting him into this world that he wanted to be in. It also makes me feel a little uneasy because I know that this didn't happen and Tarantino was using um, this real woman who was brutally murdered to um, service his characters that are made up, um, which, again, is is uneasy. So, I don't know. I'm conflicted, as I think most people are. Yeah, I, uh, I, same, uh, hard same, as I, I feel like <laughs> a lot of people probably are, but I, uh, I don't know, I, the, the very end, once, once you hear Sharon Tate's voice over the, the call box, and it sounds like she's coming through from, like, another world, and it's, like, her voice, and it's all staticky, and, and it's, that, that really, like, the second time I saw it really hit me hard, because to me, it's just such a, such a sad ending because it's like it's over the top and violent because to like highlight how much this did not happen yeah how much this beautiful dreamy like you said fairy tale ending is just not what actually happened and and to me the second time i saw it around and i knew it was happening because it's funny the first time i saw it it was like opening night so of course it was like people cheering and they're like a oh, flamethrower and it was like laughing and, and and you obviously are drawn into it's such the Tarantino you're expecting that at first you're like yes this is dope but like once you get time to really you know soak in what's going on to me it was just such a melancholy the reaching for some it, it's sort of like remem- remembering something wrong which is always really depressing when you're like oh this happened and your friend is like that's that's not how that happened. That, that's like how this entire end of the movie felt. It felt like 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 an, a weird, nice memory that you were remembering wrong. And that's that's I don't know. It really hit me on, on some strange, hard to put way that I was I was like I was devastated. I, I don't know what it was about hearing Margot Robbie as Sharon Tate over the intercom that I was like, wow, this is sad and hard hitting and whatever Tarantino was going for personally, I thought it was just very sad. And I don't know if that's the full intention, but to me, that's how it came out. It is. It's incredibly sad. It's just, I I get a lot of whiplash from the ending um, where you're sort of, you know, it gets very cartoonish in its violence and just watching the Manson family killers get destroyed, which, by the way, if your take is should have been nicer to the Manson family, <laughs> fuck off. Poor they children. were brainwashed. They didn't know what they were doing. Fuck Come off. <laughs> yeah. This, and the Nazis well, that, were just following orders. Fuck off. Yeah. Well, and that also just screams of, of people either ignorant of the history who, like, don't know enough about it and or and don't want to do the digging or people who are just being, like, willfully, like, got to be woke. What's the most woke take I can think of? Well, you know think, what, of think of the women. You know what I actually did really like about the whole this whole ending part? We, we, we've talked a lot about how he's demystifying these people. To me, I really like that. The Manson family and Charles Manson especially have been built up as, like, these horror villains. Like, when I think of the Manson family, I think of, like, these terrifying little, like, monsters that lived in the hills and stuff. Mm-hmm. And I like that they show up at this house and they just get, like, absolutely worked from, like, the beginning. Like, it's not <laughs> even, like, I was expecting, like, this big showdown. The, the, the buildup is amazing. I love the, the walking up the hill in the shadows and you're expecting this incredibly 
violent showdown and all three of them just get like just wiped from history easily and i think to me one of my favorite parts of the movie is how the manson family is portrayed as like really just these 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 dirty homeless people that lived in some <laughs> old movie ranch which was what they were they were not they they weren't horror movie villains they were just these really sick awful human beings that did a genuinely genuinely terrible thing yeah and yeah, when, me, when cliff when cliff's like oh i know you what's the, <laughs> what's the name again yeah, they're just which is which i think yeah. is perfect he walks in and he says the, the line about i'm the devil and he laughs at that because that's yeah it, it, it's last time i saw you you were on a horse <laughs> yeah. exactly. I, that to me was was one of the more effective parts about that end yeah, yeah. it's it's definitely like and that's the thing it's so weird for me and that, again that experience and why one of the reasons i'm i'm gonna go see this again is it's so weird to go into that ending and i was also kind of like okay i think he's gonna change especially I mean, I think Tarantino himself tipped his hand because out of can, like there was that letter, like, please do not spoil the ending. And I'm like, well, if you don't need the ending spoiled, that means you change something. Yeah. Um, so, but in any, even though I was bracing for it, I felt so like, I was really like, yeah, get him. But I was also <laughs> like, I feel a little guilty here, not because of what's happening to the Manson family, because fuck them, but because I'm like, boy, isn't it, it feels like not just escape, but like running to escape like just really gleefully getting away from history and getting away from reality and going at it at a breakneck speed so that when we get to that, you know, it's like just dive in. And for me, it's unlike in glorious or, or Django where this sort of rewritten history illustrates a larger point um, because of it's, t- it's tearing down these oppressive structures Nothing is being really torn down in uh, Once Upon a Time as much as sort of rewritten for something pleasant. And it does make it sad, but also that escapism, I just, part of me feels like, should we do, like, why do we deserve to escape? And what makes Tarantino deserve to write this thing about it? Like, being a fan of Sharon Tate doesn't necessarily mean you get to say, oh, I'm going to change your story, Sharon Tate. I, I, it feels. It, it makes me uncomfortable with some of it. And like discomfort is not the worst thing in the world, but I also at the same time, I think we should engage in it rather than just either rejecting it outright or just being like Tarantino can do no wrong. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I, uh, I think that's uh, why I really, really appreciate that this movie is exists because even saying that I, I, I love it overall and I was very intrigued by the ending. I'm still, like I go back and forth on so much of the movie and I've been doing that since I saw it. Like I, there are parts of it that I just do not know how to feel. And I, that's pretty great because it's been a while since a, like a, a movie this widespread. So this being talked about on the internet, I, I, it's been a while since I didn't know how to feel about a movie completely after two watches and several weeks. And I, no matter how you feel about the movie and I've, I've heard some people had some interesting opinions and some people were disagreeing, which is surprising, but <laughs> I, uh, I don't know. It's, it, I just really appreciate that a, a mainstream studio movie has gotten me and so many other people to, 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 to watch a movie and not know how to feel about it, which is not like you said, which is not a bad thing. Yeah. I really loved Avengers Endgame, but every single scene in that movie is telling you exactly how to feel about it. Well, and There's I mean, that's just, about a movie like that. sure. And I mean, that's a lot of Hollywood cinema is 
telling you how to feel about that. I mean, the reason that Spielberg is so revered is he tells you exactly how to feel at every moment. Like, and he's just very skillful at it. But like, that's a lot of what people expect. They're like, oh, I go on the movie and the ride has the ups and the downs and I don't leave with any sense of ambivalence. And Once Upon a Time is all about that ambivalence. Well, and something I've been thinking about a lot uh, since I saw it is the sequence in 500 Days of Summer that's expectations versus reality. Um, that kind of juxtaposition of Joseph Gordon-Levitt's character at this party uh, where he's being stood up by, I can't remember if they were together or not together. They they're not together. They're broken up, but he thinks his expectation is they're going to get back together. And yeah. the reality is not that. And so you watch them both side by side and the expectation is that she comes to the party, they reconcile, they are in love, they kiss passionately, there's a beautiful sunset. And the reality is she shows up, but she kind of ignores him. Um, she's very clearly not on the same page as him and it's heartbreaking to watch. Uh, and I, I feel like that same juxtaposition is happening in once upon a time in Hollywood in our heads, because we know the reality of the situation. We know what happened. We're watching, um, this expectations. And again, in 500 days of summer, those expectations are unrealistic. And especially as you get to the end of the film, you know, that that entire relationship was built on unrealistic expectations and him not reading the relationship as it truly was. Um, and so I think that kind of leads to that that operatic quality of the Once Upon a Time in Hollywood ending, or the the, the fairy tale quality of the ending of this film, um, and just how over the top it was. Um, and I'll admit I didn't know how to feel until Leo brought that flamethrower out, and then I laughed <laughs> just because it's such a ridiculous moment. It's such a ridiculous thing to happen, and yet it's it's satisfying on some level, and. And also heartbreaking, Benny, as you said, because you know what happened. You know the reality of the situation. What I what I can say for absolute sure is that Brandy is a very good girl. Yes. Uh, the dog is, is, is flawless, and I have no complaints. Yeah. Brandy is an absolute unit and <laughs> should be recognized as such. I Brand- say Brandy is, the- is a frontrunner for best dog in a movie. Part of yes. the tension of that last scene, I was like, you know, I think Tarantino would kill a dog. Yes. I don't want, I don't want that to happen. Yes, I, really I felt the same way. Happen. I felt exactly the same way. I was like, all right, Cliff, uh, he, he might bite it here. I was like, but don't kill Brandy. Just don't <laughs> kill Brandy. Yeah. Don't kill the dog. Um, but the the Sharon Tate of it all, I think, goes towards, uh, Matt, to your point of, of how Django and Inglorious were um, pointing to larger issues facing uh, the world or, or larger, larger problems. I think the, again, this, this is a very personal film for Tarantino because the death of Sharon Tate was kind of the death of that peace and love era of the sixties that he grew up in. And it's clearly something that impacted him strongly. If, if in, in hindsight, it's not necessarily an event as large as, uh, you know, Adolf Hitler or slavery. Right. No, absolutely. I mean, it's not, I don't mean to be like, well, if it's not Nazi Germany or the, or the sure. slavery or slavery, it's not important. Um, but I, I just I, think it's interesting, though. Like, yeah. it's, it's very clearly like he made this movie not to comment on something that he feels is like very, very important to the world or some like systemic issue, but to comment on something that very personally impacted him mm-hmm. and the world had he, that he loves, which is the movies. And that's why I think this film is stronger than something like the Kill Bill films, which are also sort of a, you know, jump dive into my id. But there's nothing particularly personal about those movies they always they feel like they keep you at a distance and they feel sort of light because 
it's Tarantino's not really wrestling. He's not putting anything personal beyond his interests into the mix. And I think with Once Upon a Time, there's more of him. Uh, and I think he's he's showing himself a little. And, you know, you can take it or leave it. I mean, but I like the fact that it feels more personal uh, than just simply uh, a cascade of references. Yeah. Although I love the post credit scene. So. Yeah, that's fun too. <laughs> the red apple cigarettes. That's a reference that uh, I will I will allow. Yes. Um, so is there anything else you guys want to add about this or should we talk a little bit about what, what does Tarantino do from here? Let's look to the future, Matt. Let's look to the future and go boldly to the fact that Tarantino <laughs> will never direct a Star Trek movie. <laughs> that's not inside information. I just don't buy it for a second that that Tarantino has one movie left and it's going to be fucking Star Trek. Just because on the one hand, yeah, it would be kind of poignant to be like, I've been left behind by franchise filmmaking, but franchise filmmaking was still kind of around already. Um, and just to be like, you know, my last hurrah is going to be part of, like it makes him smaller. Like I love Star Trek. I would like to see Tarantino Star Trek, but his last movie isn't going to be just another Star Trek film. Like at the end of the day, you could make the greatest Star Trek film and he won't because Wrath of Khan exists, but you know, you can't, it, it would just be like, okay, you have to, you want to make a, a, a last hurrah, but you have to do it within the boundaries of Star Trek. Maybe I don't, I just have trouble seeing that as his last film. I think his last film is going to be, I would, I actually would find it maybe something more circular. I would, I would not be surprised if it was something smaller and something like Reservoir Dogs, like something more intimate rather than sprawling, which he has done for his, his last few movies. I also don't really believe that he's going to stop after, after his next movie. <laughs> That's possible I, too. I, that, that, that dude has been tying himself up into so many loopholes. I think he's already said that Star Trek wouldn't technically count. And mm-hmm. he said the thing Bill Bill being one movie, which is just objectively not true. I, I, I don't know if he's really... No, I do know. I, I, I know for a fact that man is not going to stop after his next movie. As long as it's not another Western. I get it. I get yeah. it. Dude loves Westerns. Awesome. Don't spend half your filmography making Westerns when you're someone like Quentin Tarantino. Yeah, that just, was actually, as a fan... I, I, I would counter, make as many Westerns as you want, because no one else is making them. <laughs> That's true. That was actually like the funniest. You and Ed Harris. I was like, I was like, you know what? I, 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 am glad that he likes those movies, but I'm excited to see him take on a new time period. And then there's just like extended scenes of Western. <laughs> He's like, surprise, I was like, motherfucker. Oh, you told sit me through this wasn't a Western. Minutes. They were good. Just, He's good. Yeah. But... They're good, but it's just like, yeah, I'm gonna like for real, just make you sit here and watch a '50s Western TV show. <laughs> In the middle of my big movie. Well, what, one of the things I really love about that scene, though, is that it it shows that when film is being made, it transports you. Like, the way the camera moves in that scene, it moves basically all around. But the way it moves, it never shows the crew. Even though we know the crew is there, and, he ta- and, and Rick talks to them when he needs a line, like... It shows that when filmmaking is happening, a new world is being created. Like you leave yeah. behind the production. I thought that was a really skillful shot. I don't know. I feel like he could go out on this one. Like I feel like he could he could do yeah. a Star Trek, and I'd just be like, you know what, do whatever you want. Because like Once Upon a Time, fit in Hollywood, kind of feels like his farewell anyway. Mm-hmm. I don't necessarily know how much more finite or, um. Uh, you know, personal, he can make it. Yeah. Um, unless he like does clerks, basically. 
like a video store clerk, uh, which would be kind of funny if he just did like a one million dollar like Blumhouse like video store clerk movie, right? <laughs> fine film, uh, cast an unknown or put himself in it. There you go. He lo- uh, that dude, my dude, loves to act <laughs> and bless him his, for it. His Australian cameo in Django Unchained is iconic. Um, yeah, I, yeah, I would. I would really like him to do a movie that's just set in modern day Star Trek. I mean, I personally don't have any attachment to Star Trek, but just on the basis that it would be like this sci-fi movie, I I would really like to see another Quentin Tarantino movie that's not set in the past or the future. Just bring it back to the present. I I, I feel like it's been so long, and clearly he's changed a lot since uh, I've kill bill was that his last i don't even know his last yeah and even kill bill is like a heightened reality so i'd probably see jackie brown yeah so i I feel like he he's clearly changed a lot and he's starting to actually admit that and i'd like to see what his view i would say death proof does take i mean even though it's it does death proof does take place in in the present day despite the way that it shot true true well still my point my point still says that i would i i would really like to see him just tell an original story set in whatever modern day he sees fit to spend it in. That's fair. I mean, the thing is, you know, it's funny, like as much as I enjoy Tarantino movies and I think that he still hasn't made a bad film, I think his films range in quality, but I wouldn't say that there's a Tarantino film that I would say that's bad. That's just out and out bad. Yeah. Um, I would also be like, you know what, if Tarantino wants to hang it up and just write books, write books, write plays, do your TV series. Like just, you know, I don't feel like filmmakers owe anything to the pop, to the public. They really don't. So if Tarantino's, you know, he can be like, you know what? I changed my mind. I've, I've, I've done 10. I'm done. And I don't really have anything more to say. I'd be like, okay, you know, have fun, do your, do something else, you know? So I, you know, I, well, I, I'm, I, I kind of lean more towards where you are, Vinny, where, I don't think he's really going to stop. I think he's going to be sort of like that, you know, he'll change the rules until he can't and just be like, you know what? I think I have more to say. I think it's fine either way. Like, I'm glad that we have Tarantino movies, but at the same time, I'm not going to be like bummed if he stops making them. Not because I don't care, but because he's made 10 really good movies, you know, let's enjoy them. Well, he's also like, he just does shit for himself. Like it doesn't feel like he has a need to, like he said, he wrote one the first draft of Once Upon a Time in Hollywood, and then he put it away. He wrote five episodes of Bounty Law and wrote a play, and then came back to writing Once Upon a Time in Hollywood. And like you'll see him like in interviews, just casually mention like, "Well, I was writing this book on," and then drops name of obscure filmmaker here um, that's never been released. He's just writing books and just putting them on his shelves. I guess I don't know. So he's still doing stuff, but uh, yeah, uh, I mean. I hope he doesn't stop at ten. I'd like to see more. Yeah, I'm glad. I'm glad he has hobbies. It's nice to have. Hobbies. <laughs> it's nice to have hobbies. Like, write, like writing full seasons of TV. <laughs> yes. uh, the only difference between Tarantino and me is that his stuff has a chance to get published, <laughs> and that it's better. But other than that, um, all right. You so you can start your bounty law fiction fan fiction <laughs> website. Yeah. Way ahead of you. Bounty <laughs> law, the, the bounty law fans.com. Yes. All right. Do you guys want to do Tar- your Tarantino rankings? Let's do it. All right. So starting at 10, uh, Vinny, what's your, your 10th favorite? Uh, 
let me I think let me find it real quick. I had it up. All right. Of course, I t- of course, I tweeted it as was law in the aftermath. of. Oh, the you Tarantino. actually oh, if you did it, tweet your Tarantino like favorites. You were kicked. You were permanently removed from film Twitter. That's a fact. Oh, man, I didn't tweet mine. Oh, you're out of film Twitter now. Oh, man. Here we are. At 10, I have Hateful Eight, which I, is a movie I genuinely do not like. I'll be honest with you. I uh, I don't know what it is about that film. I find it unpleasant and not in a good way. Like a lot, It's of really things. mean. It is really mean. The ending is just like, wow, that's that's a bummer. And after yeah. like three hours, that's just the end of the movie. But yeah, <laughs> it, has its, it has its benefits. Uh, eight, nine, I have Django Unchained because I think I mentioned this. I just... I don't know. Maybe I'm just not a Western fan. I don't know what I. I don't know. That's just how I feel about that one. Eight Reservoir Dogs, seven Death Proof, but the specifically the version that was released on Grindhouse because I think the longer version is like significantly worse. Uh, six Kill Bill Two, five Once Upon a Time in Hollywood, four Jackie Brown, three Kill Bill Volume One. Two Pulp Fiction and one Inglorious Bastards. <laughs> All right, Bastards. <laughs> Solid. Solid list. Adam, what are, what about you? Uh, I also have the Hateful Eight at number ten. I also find it unpleasant, but I also don't. Uh, I don't know if I actively dislike any of his films. I, I will say I don't think he's made a bad film. The Hateful Eight is just not something that I enjoy. Um, nine, I have Death Proof, but. You know, it wavers, and I've only ever seen the extended cut. I've never seen the grindhouse cut, so I probably need to get better, on that. It's a better movie. Um, uh, and this would surprise me before I did my recent rewatches, but I have Kill Bill Volume 2 at number 8 and Kill Bill Volume 1 at number 7, um, followed by Reservoir Dogs at number 6, Once Upon a Time in Hollywood at number 5, though that may climb. Django Unchained I have at number 4, just because I just find that movie super watchable um, and very entertaining. I mean, despite the, you know, horrendous things happening on screen. I think, uh, you know, Christoph Waltz, you'd be hard-pressed to find an actor who's given two better performances in a row than uh, Django Unchained and uh, Inglourious Bastards or Christoph Waltz. Um, They're just instantly iconic. But um, number three, I have Pulp Fiction. Two Inglorious Bastards, because I also find that movie uh, supremely watchable. Uh, every single scene is just incredible. Um, and then number one, Jackie Brown. It's unlike anything else he's ever made. Uh, it's it's just got this hook to it, this this kind of class to it that I don't think any of his other films have um, that just makes it unique to me. Um, I don't know. I just really, really strongly respond to that one. Yeah, our lists are pretty similar. Our Adam, our, our list. Are... You just copied my. You just listened to mine and you wrote them down, and now you're just gonna say them and pretend that they're yours. I thought you were gonna be, and then you went back in time and you posted it <laughs> on Friday for everyone to see, and you saved Sharon Tate's life. <laughs> <laughs> yes, bad taste, Benny. <laughs> How dare you? Get off of get get out of here. Tarantino did it first. Uh, <laughs> Tarantino did it. All right. So for for mine, ten is ten is hateful eight. Which again, like I just, it's a film. Like I don't think it's a bad film. It's just a deeply unpleasant one that doesn't really go anywhere. And especially the thing that makes hateful eight even worse is nothing that Tarantino did. But after seeing bad times at the El Royale, I'm like, oh, that's how you fucking do a bunch of people yeah. stuck. A bunch of strangers stuck in one location. That's how you fucking do it. Bad times is better. I will say it definitively. Um, Nine is Death Proof, uh, Grindhouse Cut. 
Eight is Kill Bill Volume One. Seven is Kill Bill Volume Two. Yeah, those films I like. I remembered liking them when I saw them, but then when I rewatched them, like these aren't really doing it for me in the way that they did. Um, even though, again, I don't think they're bad. Uh, six is Once Upon a Time in Hollywood. Five is Django Unchained. Uh, four is Reservoir Dogs, which I I just like a lot. I just I find it moves really fast. Uh, Chris Penn's large adult son energy in that movie is just. <laughs> mwah. He'll tell you started the Great Chicago Fire, but that don't make it fucking so. <laughs> oh, love it. Uh, three is Pulp Fiction. Uh, two is Inglorious Bastards. And one is Jackie Brown. Although Jackie Brown and Inglorious are very close together. Like either yeah. one of those could have been the top spot. But I just, I think Jackie Brown is just so tender and just really smart. And I think it's just, I think it's it's Tarantino- I, I find the boldness of Jackie Brown to be even more encouraging where the fact is he could have done something similar to Pulp Fiction after Pulp Fiction and he took a big swing and did something very different and did something better. And I think even though Jackie Brown wasn't recognized in its time, I think it's it's the more... In, not that Pulp Fiction isn't enduring. We can't underestimate the importance of Pulp Fiction. And I think in terms of film history, Pulp Fiction is more important, but I think Jackie Brown is the better film. When he said this on uh, it, Amy Nicholson is doing a miniseries with him mm-hmm. on The Ringer, and he said that Jackie Brown is the movie you expect him to make uh, like 30 years after Pulp Fiction, but he made it as his third movie. Mm-hmm. And so that kind of threw a lot of people off because it, it was just much more mature. And, and as I said, when we talked about it on our podcast, I think it's a movie that gets better after you've seen his movies he made after it or just gets more enjoyable as part of his filmography um, just because it is so different. Like he never made a movie like that again. Yeah. No, it's, it's pretty fantastic. Um, all right. Well, thank you all so much for listening. If you want to keep up with this podcast, you should follow us on Twitter. Uh, Vinny, where can we find you on Twitter? Uh, I am at Vinny Mancuso one. Uh, that's where I am. All right. And Adam, where can we find you? At Adam Chitwood. And you can find me at Matt Goldberg. Thanks for listening, everyone. We'll be back with you next time.